Hello, welcome to the Grow Your Wealthy Mindset Podcast, where it is all about helping amazing physicians just like you create a wealthy life free from burnout and with the financial security to practice medicine on your own terms. I'm your host, Dr. Elisa Zhang. Hello, and welcome back. Thanks so much for listening. In previous episodes, I talked about real estate investing, including the tax advantages of real estate investing. It was a lot of facts, and sometimes our brains are not good at remembering facts. It's much easier to remember a story than a set of facts. So for this episode, I thought I would talk about how I use real estate investing to get a large tax refund. For most of 2021, I was working as a full-time ophthalmologist and acroplastic surgeon, so there was really no real way I could establish rep status. Remember, reps is real estate professional status. My husband has no interest in real estate, and money is not a motivator for him. Even financial freedom doesn't motivate him. He's a worker bee, and he's content to just have his employee mindset. I personally have been involved in many aspects of real estate investing, but I had yet to do a short-term rental. The closest I ever got to having a short-term rental before was when my friend from college and I went to the Smoky Mountains to look at a real estate development. So my friend had found this development, and they were looking for high-income individuals that want to invest in real estate, which my friend fell into this category. And they would actually fly out potential clients as well as business partners to see the cabins that they were building and selling to be vacation rentals. And so we actually got flown out to the Smoky Mountains and we stayed at one of the cabins they were building and looked at the other cabins they were building. And we actually also found a realtor to look at other vacation rentals. This was back in 2007, 2008, sometime around there. So right around the time of the housing crash, this wasn't really quite when it got really bad. When we crunched the numbers, And back then, the property management fees were like 50% for a short-term rental. It just didn't make sense. It didn't seem like it would have positive cash flow. I mean, we could see how maybe with tax deductions, it could be beneficial for someone who was in a high tax bracket, but you don't want to let the tax tail wag the dog. So we didn't actually end up buying then. And, And maybe it would have been a good investment to buy then, but again, not with those property management fees. So back then, VRBO did exist. I had actually booked accommodations for my honeymoon through VRBO, but I really didn't know anything about vacation rentals. I had actually taken Rich Dad Poor Dad real estate investment courses, and they had courses in all sorts of real estate investing, from long-term rentals, lease option, wholesaling, commercial real estate, but they did not actually have a course in short-term rentals back then. So anywho, now short-term rentals are all the brave. Airbnb has definitely done a great job in marketing short-term rentals and that the average person can turn their own home into an Airbnb and basically a short-term rental. Fast forward to the last few years. I had actually taken a course on short-term rentals put together by Sabatha Seti. Sabatha had purchased multiple properties that she turned to short-term rentals. And so she created a course and I was actually in her beta launch. By the time I really started thinking about short-term rentals in 2021, it had already gotten really popular. Some people were really making a significant amount of money off short-term rentals as well. And then there's also the tax advantages of short-term rentals, which I mentioned in the previous podcast episode. So I kind of decided, why not? Let's go ahead. Let's do this. So I'm just going to go through kind of my thought process and my story with the short-term rental. 
I will add that I also read Carl Avery's book, Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth. So Sabatha recommended, if possible, having your first short-term rental somewhat close to you. I had thought again about possibly getting a short-term rental in the Smoky Mountains. So Smoky Mountain National Park is the most visited national park in our nation. But it does feel like there's a lot of short-term rentals there. One of the good things about that area is that there are very specific regulations already in place. So you know what you're really getting into. There's also a lot of new builds in that area. And with the popularity of short-term rentals, the prices were really driven quite high. My other thought is that with the pandemic, a lot of people were choosing to drive to their vacations instead of fly, which would also drive the prices in the Smoky Mountains National Park area up. One of the reasons why the Smoky Mountains National Park is the most visited national park in the United States is because it is in such close proximity and driving distance to such a large population of the United States. I also knew that prices right now during the pandemic time could be potentially higher because of higher demand. And then once the pandemic is over, it may not actually be able to continue renting at those prices or having those occupancy rates. Just looking at myself, I was willing to fly once I was vaccinated, but in 2021, I wasn't quite ready to actually go on an international trip, even to Europe. So when I look at my vacations of 2021, I actually stayed within the country going to Florida as well as the West Coast for my two vacations, where normally I would do at least one international trip a year. So while the Smoky Mountains is driving distance for me, it is a pretty long drive, something like seven to eight hours. So then I started thinking about what other places were within driving distance that I could potentially get a short-term rental. And I really thought about Hocking Hills. Hocking Hills is an area of Ohio that's very popular with the local people. So most people who go to Hocking Hills, I would say, are people in Ohio, Pennsylvania, you know, maybe Michigan and Indiana. But it's really more of a local kind of destination. It's also a destination that doesn't really have hotels people do rent cabins. That is a normal thing. Or when I went, it was just my husband and I, so we did a bed and breakfast. There are a lot of families that go or families that will get together and go. So one of my staff members, her family rented a cabin for a week as their vacation, and they did this often. I also knew other friends who were going to Hocking Hill. So it just seemed like maybe this would be a good area to have a short-term rental. I talked to Sabatha Seti, and she actually did have a connection with a realtor in the Hocking Hills area. So she introduced me to that realtor, and I talked to her about what I was looking for, the price point I was thinking about investing in. And not that long later, this realtor actually brought me a property, a really nice cabin that had been functioning as an Airbnb and vacation home. So the current owners of the property, they used it as their vacation home. And then they put it on Airbnb and rented out when they weren't using it. Their daughter actually lived in the area, but had recently moved away. And due to other family circumstances, they decided to sell the home. So I used AirDNA to analyze the potential occupancy rates as well as rental rates and ran the numbers. And it did look like it could be a profitable Airbnb. I did get the information from the current owners including their tax filings to see what they were making. And it looked like they were really under-renting it in terms of how much they were charging. One of the biggest risks with short-term rentals is actually regulation. 
There have been cities that essentially banned short-term rentals or significantly restricted the permits available for short-term rentals. As I said, the Hocking Hills area has been an area where people have been renting cabins for decades, but the area does have like multiple townships. And there aren't really specific laws regarding short-term rentals that were in place. So I spent the time to actually look up local and state laws. There was a time where I actually almost backed out due to the fact that there weren't specific laws and what if something came in place such that I would not be able to actually use the cabin as a short-term rental. This is why it's best to have a backup plan. Like if you can have the property be a midterm rental or long-term rental in case you can't use it as a short-term rental. In this case, this property would be negative cash flow as a long-term rental, and there wasn't really demand for midterm rentals in this area. I didn't really have a great backup plan. The only backup plan if I couldn't, if I could no longer use it as a short-term rental would be just to sell the property, which potentially would be a, a loss. There wasn't much room for forced appreciation, which means fixing up the property so it's worth more than the cost of fixing up. The property was already in good shape. The previous owners had actually done a lot of renovations themselves to the property. And so any further renovations I did was unlikely to increase the value of the property more than the actual cost of the renovation. You know, I spent a lot of time talking to multiple people and there were definitely people who said, I wouldn't go for it. There are other deals. Go find another deal. In the end, I decided to go for it. And part of it was that it was in the budget that I kind of wanted to buy in. And, you know, there are a lot of short-term rentals that are selling for close to a million dollars or over a million dollars. And I just didn't want to go that high. And the numbers really did look very promising. So I closed on the property in mid-November, the week before Thanksgiving. My husband and I went to the cabin after closing, and we spent that weekend really cleaning it up and doing some updating. We changed the furnishings around a little bit, and it also gave me an idea of what else I wanted to do in the coming weeks. We already had plans to be with my family for Thanksgiving, so we weren't able to go to the cabin at that time. During that time, I did work on the Airbnb listing. I spent time shopping online and just spent more time planning on what to do in order to get this short-term rental up and running. We went back down the first weekend of December, and then we actually had our first guest the following weekend. We ended up having three sets of guests for the, the three weekends in December after the first weekend where we spent the time working. And we spent well over 100 hours between my husband and I before the end of the year. I probably spent close to 100 hours just myself. And then there were all the extra hours that my husband spent coming down with me, doing the cleaning and other work actually on the property. And so one of the things that come from material participation is working on the property 100 hours and more than anyone else. That 100 hours can actually be split between the two owners of the property, which in this case were me and my husband. I should say here that if you did buy the property with someone who wasn't your spouse, I'm not exactly sure how that works. But in the case of a married couple, both spouses can work on the cabin together. And as long as they're kind of doing different things or things that two people need to do, then it's fine. The way my accountant gave an example is that if both of us went shopping together, like if we both go to Lowe's or Home Depot together to go buy paint, then that doesn't count as an hour for each of us because one person could have done that job. But if we're both in the cabin and he's cleaning and I'm putting up blinds, then his hours count separate from my hours. This is why you really want to talk to your accountant about how your accountant in interprets the tax law. 
because we put in so many hours, I did actually have a cleaner do the cleanings after each one of the guests. I tracked the hours of the cleaner and she worked significantly less than 100 hours, closer to 20 hours during the year of 2021. I also waited till January to bring in contractors for other jobs that I wanted done, like putting in the hot tub in order to just not have other people working on the property. So potentially we could have done substantially everything if we did the cleaning ourselves. I did get a cost segregation study with engineer tax services so that I could get 100% bonus depreciation. And all that work really paid off. I recently received my federal tax refund and it was over $30,000. The cabin has been rented almost every weekend in 2022, though it wasn't quite as fully booked during the summer high season months as I projected in the performa. Typically during July, a lot of the cabins will be booked for full weeks instead of just the weekend. I had every weekend booked and I had some weekdays booked, but not nearly to the occupancy rates that I had originally projected. Still, I had positive cash flow and I definitely made money in 2022 with a short-term rental. I will say that there have been multiple challenges to overcome in that last year. There was a real learning curve when it came to the cleaning and maintenance of the hot tub. I've also continued to manage the cabin myself. A lot of property managers for short-term rentals do charge quite a bit. The low end is 20 to 30%. And when you're looking at potentially having a gross income of somewhere between 80 to 120,000 for a short-term rental, that's a lot of money to pay. And honestly, it is not that much work to manage a short-term rental. I now have the cabin listed on VRBO as well as a website called HockingHills.com, which has been a website in place in that area, featuring cabins of that area for a long time. And I was able to even continue managing the property even when I was on vacation in Europe over the summer. Issues that arise really can be handled with phone calls, emails, and texts, even big issues. I unfortunately got a call that there were multiple leaks in a roof after a hard rain. So then I got some roofers out to you know look at just doing a repair. During my inspection, the inspector had said the roof was probably in its second decade of life. And so I probably had at least 10, maybe 15 years before I needed to replace the roof. Unfortunately, with the multiple leaks, the roofers came and said it could be patched, but probably would be better to just have a new roof. And I had a second opinion on that, which they said the same thing. And so I actually ended up getting a number of roofing quotes and getting a new roof done all within a week so that I could have a roof and not have to cancel bookings. If you're thinking about doing a short-term rental, you do want to think about it as being in the hospitality business. So there are going to be a lot of messages from guests and they may ask you questions. There are ways that you can set up automatic answers with different software. But in the end, having a short-term rental is the hospitality business. The interaction you'll have with your guests is going to be a lot more than the interactions you have with long-term tenants. You'll also spend more time learning the different platforms like Airbnb and VRBO, as well as different softwares that help with different aspects of running your Airbnb, such as a property management software. There are some guests that are great and leave the property in great shape, and there are some guests who aren't so great and I did have one guest where there was actual destruction of the property. I would say that running a short-term rental 
is active work. It's not completely passive. It's definitely not passive like a real estate syndication, but it's also something that you can do on the side is something that if you're working full time, you can still property manage a short-term rental yourself. And if you start to buy multiple short-term rentals, then you can find different systems in place so that it's not taking up so much of your time. That might involve hiring a virtual assistant. You can also always go ahead and get a property manager to manage your short-term rental if the numbers work for you. I think overall, it has been a worthwhile experience. I would say in general, I'm one of those people who likes to dip my toe in the water first. I don't just jump right in. I know that there are other people who had their second short-term rental under contract even before they closed on their first. I personally wanted to buy one short-term rental, get it up and running, see how it goes before I start thinking about buying a second short-term rental. I did consider purchasing another short-term rental in 2022 so that I could do the bonus depreciation again, but in the end, I just decided not to due to multiple reasons. At this point, I don't know if I will buy another short-term rental. I'm not against it, but I'm also not so gun-ho for it. I know multiple real estate investors who've really done great with their short-term rentals and have even achieved financial independence within a year because of their short-term rentals. Short-term rentals really can be a way to quickly accelerate your wealth. If you're listening to this episode soon after it released, it is still possible that you could get a short-term rental this year, get your 100 hours in, and be able to do bonus depreciation to get that big tax write-off this year. You would have to get something under contract relatively soon because you'll want to close on the property by late November or latest early December. Then you'll have to get your 100 hours in as well as at least two guest days before the end of the year. If that feels like too tight of a timeline for you, there is still 80% of bonus depreciation in 2023. So this is really still a very viable strategy to significantly decrease your taxes. So that's been my journey with buying and renting a short-term rental. Overall, it's been a good one. I would say the biggest obstacle whenever it comes to taking on a project like this is really working on your mindset. I think the biggest thing that stops people from investing in real estate is the fear of losing money. And certainly that is something that has come up with me as well. We invest in real estate in order to make money. And while for some people, investing in real estate itself is fun, it probably wouldn't stay fun if they were constantly losing money in those investments. What's great is that there are lots of resources out there to now help you and lots of people who are doing this who are really very open in talking about their experience and really helping others be able to do the same. So I always say that the best investment you can make is in yourself. So if you are interested in investing in short-term rentals, first invest in your knowledge of how to go about that, either with reading books like Short-Term Rentals, Long-Term Wealth by Carl Avery, or by taking courses like the one that Sabatha Seti has, or listening to podcasts. There are actually several podcasts on short-term rentals as well as real estate in general. I'm also happy to be a resource for you. So if you have any other questions about what it was like for me buying and managing my short-term rental, I'm happy to talk to you about it. You can always reach out to me at my email, 
growyourwealthymindset at gmail.com or by going to my website, www.growyourwealthymindset.com and filling out the contact form. I'm here to support you in any way I can. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you next week. If you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you could share it with your friends and colleagues. And now for the disclaimer. I am not a certified financial planner, accountant, or attorney, and nothing I say should be construed as professional investment, tax, or legal advice. This show is primarily for your education and entertainment. I am a physician, but I'm probably not your physician. So if you need any medical advice, please contact your own physician. Thank you.